Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. Humans have progressively learned to transform their environment and depend on cooperation for survival. In our increasingly multidisciplinary and multicultural world, it seems more important than ever to understand how this works. My guest today suggests that humans have not only created physical machines, but also mental machines, which she calls cognitive gadgets, that enable our minds to go further, faster, and in different directions than the minds of other animals. Professor Celia Hayes is Senior Research Fellow in Psychology at All Souls College at the University of Oxford and a Fellow of the British Academy. Celia trained as an experimental psychologist at the University College London and was a Harkins Fellow in the United States, as well as a Research Fellow at Trinity Hall in Cambridge University. She returned to UCL, UCL as a faculty member before coming to Oxford. Her work in experimental and theoretical psychology examines the evolution of human cognition. It explores the ways in which natural selection, learning, developmental, and cultural processes combine to produce the mature cognitive abilities found in adult humans. Most of her current projects suggest that the neurocognitive mechanisms enabling cultural inheritance, social learning, imitation, mirror neurons, mind reading, etc., are themselves the products of cultural evolution. In 2018, Celia published her latest book on these topics, titled Cognitive Gadgets, The Culture Evolution of Thinking. Thank you very much, Celia, for joining me today. Thank you, it's a pleasure. To begin, I would like to explore your book a little bit. You say, distinctively human cognitive mechanisms are gadgets rather than instincts, so products of cultural rather than genetic evolution. Can you please tell me what you mean by that? Well, there was a picture of what made human minds special, what made them different from the minds of other animals, which emerged in the early 1990s, led by people like Steven Pinker and later Cosmedes and John Tuby, uh, which said that essentially we are born with some pretty complicated pieces of thinking kit. Okay. Language, the main one. So the idea is that we genetically inherit a mechanism which makes us ready to learn language. It's almost as if we genetically inherit some knowledge of grammar Mm -hmm. and then exposure to language around us and in babies and children just sort of fills in the details um, and enables us to speak and to understand. They thought that there were other special pieces of cognitive kit, all genetically inherited. And at that time, the evidence did seem to point in that direction. Mm -hmm. But my research suggests that in the intervening last few decades, there have been many discoveries suggesting that, yes, they were right that we humans have some special ways of thinking, which are either completely absent in other animals or are present only in some trace form, Mm -hmm. but that we are not born with them. They're not something that we genetically inherit. Instead, they are sort of built in the course of development 
as a result of the way in which children interact with adults in their culture. Mm-hmm. So, so how does that, what does that look like? What, what do does that look like? Well, if we do have some inborn differences, say, compared with chimpanzees. We have, for example, a bias to look at faces. So even newborn babies, if you show them a triangle of dark blobs on a light background, where there are two blobs at the top and there's one blob at the bottom, then the newborn will turn their head to keep looking at that for much longer than if you show them three dark blobs where there's one at the top and there's two at the bottom. Mm. Because the first with two blobs at the top is like a face. So Mm. it's like we're born ready to lock on to faces. Right, ready to learn from... Ready to learn from other people. people. Yeah. So that there is something that we genetically inherit that makes us ready to learn from others... Mm -hmm. But what we learn is very much determined by the culture into which we are born. Different cultures have developed over generations different ways of thinking. And Mm -hmm. the developing child kind of downloads those ways of thinking from the people around them. Sure. So how is this then? This is obviously learning from our culture and learning from our environment. So how is this different than you're saying that in we're not necessarily pre-programmed to do some of the things that we do it's through social conditioning how is this different from what is being told more conventionally you can see it as a matter of degree so the traditional cognitive instinct view and the view that i'm proposing cognitive gadgets both of them allow that the way that we think as adults is due to a mixture Mm -hmm. of information that we genetically inherit and information that we obtain through our own learning and through learning from other people. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no such thing as some characteristic which is purely due to nurture Mm -hmm. or purely due to nature. It's always a mixture. But the standard cognitive instinct view, the view that's promoted by evolutionary psychology, as it's often called, is saying that what we inherit in the genes is very specific, that we're getting most of our information from there, and we're just kind of filling in some details Mm -hmm. in the course of development. Whereas I'm saying, no, actually, the balance is completely different. What we're genetically inheriting are some biases that just make us very receptive to any information which is being supplied by other people. They make us kind of Mm sponge-like to the influence of others. But the architecture of the mind is really determined by exactly what we learn from others in the course of development. Right, so one of the things that you, so trying to understand what this looks like uh, with examples, Uh, from the past. So one of the things that you have talked about in your book is about reading people, Mm. being able to read people. And some people have this belief that they're much better at reading people than others. How does that look in terms of cognitive gadgets? What is there a cognitive gadget that we have developed in order to understand? And some people have developed it better than others. How does that work? I I think that's right. Mm -hmm. I mean, this capacity, which is sometimes called mind reading, Mm -hmm. sometimes called having a theory of mind, 
which um, in our culture is absolutely pervasive. I mean, we spend a lot of our time thinking about the thoughts and feelings of others and trying to explain what we see them do and predict what they'll do next right. according to what we think are the thoughts and feelings that they mm -hmm. have. That's called mind reading. So mind reading is not telepathy. Mm -hmm. It's just that use of inferences about the thoughts and feelings of others to predict and explain what they do. And the traditional cognitive instinct view suggests that we genetically inherit somehow the knowledge that other agents have a range of thoughts and feelings, that we genetically inherit information about how these thoughts and feelings relate to one another and to actions. Mm -hmm. So the baby is very much primed when they get into the world to see others in that way, to right. see others' behavior as being driven by thoughts and feelings of particular kinds. Mm -hmm. Instead, the gadget view suggests that that is a theory of what makes people do things, which has been honed over successive generations, particularly in Western culture. Okay. But that it's not passed down from one generation to the next in the genes, it's passed down by conversation. So children have conversations with their parents over storybooks, for example. Imagine, you know, you're sitting with a child and you open a particular page of a storybook mm -hmm. and you say, oh, look, um, you know, the little boy is playing with the dog. That's making him so happy. See, you can see he's happy. He's smiling. Mm. And um, what's he likely to do next, given that he's happy? You know, so there's another little boy here. This other little boy is looking sad. Uh, what's the first little boy going to do? Oh, well, you know, he might encourage him to come and play with the dog because mm -hmm. you know, he knows that it makes him happy and so on. So through those kinds of things that we say to children, we're telling them about the relationship between events and emotions. Mm -hmm. You know, things like playing with a dog make you happy. Um, about the relationship between bodily movements and emotions. When you're happy, it's going to make you smile. In a way, we're teaching children these concepts, mm -hmm. concepts of thoughts and feelings. But there's evidence that there are other cultures in which thoughts and feelings are much, much less important right. in explaining behavior. And so in those cultures, then the children would not be it's not genetic that you can automatically read people's feelings and thoughts. It's because of that continuous training that that cognitive gadget gets tuned. That's right. Into it. So what it suggests is that this way of thinking, this mind reading, mm -hmm. is not genetically based in any culture, that every culture finds a way of interpreting the behavior of others. Mm -hmm. Some cultures, or with common origins, many Western cultures have common origins, are using beliefs and desires, thoughts and feelings, a lot to explain behavior. Mm -hmm. Other cultures with different roots will more often use the social position that an individual holds. That's a durable thing. You know, mm -hmm. you might be 
at a certain position in a social hierarchy. It may depend on your gender, it may depend on your technical skills. So they'll map an individual's position in a social organization and then they'll look at the specific circumstances that person is in now mm -hmm. and who else is there and what are their social positions. So it's another complicated system of inference and they'll use all of those facts to explain and predict what that individual is going to do next rather than as it were rummaging around in their minds rather mm -hmm. than ascribing thoughts and feelings to them. So it's a very it's a very subconscious something yes. that we have been trained into from from infancy and a very subconscious belief of how we how we can predict what is going what someone's going to do and how they're going to behave and that's right i think unconscious on both sides yeah. so if you think about that paradigmatic kind of interaction between a child and an adult mm -hmm. over a storybook the child doesn't know that they are learning a way mm -hmm. of interpreting the behavior of others but also the adult doesn't see themselves as teaching that i mean as full-blown members of our own culture we think this is right. We think mm -hmm. that others really do have beliefs and desires. Mm -hmm. And we're just expressing those beliefs mm -hmm. with a child present. The child is learning. But nobody's intending to transmit a theory. Right. But it is a very good thing to keep in mind, isn't it? That uh, the same way we are told that the more words a child hears before they go to before they go to preschool, the more prepared they are for learning because they have heard more words, they have a larger vocabulary. The same way, in this way, we're preparing our children on how to be able to predict how people are going to behave, how events are going to unfold. And do you think maybe it's something that we can consciously consider when we're when we're reading to our children, when we are teaching them how to behave? Absolutely. It can be the spontaneous tendency can be amplified mm -hmm. in a helpful way. So there's a lot of research by, among others, Candy Peterson and Virginia Slaughter in Australia showing that how many mental state terms adults use when talking to children, how often they refer to beliefs and desires mm -hmm hunches and hankerings, feelings and thoughts, how often they use those terms influences how rapidly the child develops the capacity to think about themselves and others in these terms. Right. Also how often the adult uses what they call causal explanatory statements. So not just how often the adult says words like happy and think, but also how often the parent says things like oh, he's smiling because he's happy. Mm -hmm. So it's like they're explicitly teaching the child there is a relationship between this observable behavior right. and the feeling which is inside. Yes. Those things promote the development of mind reading. Interesting. So there's definitely some things that we are born with, for example, the ability to actually learn a language, but it's through cognitive gadgets that, for example, animals are not born with. But you're saying with cognitive gadgets, it's the development of these skills that we learn to use. For example, in reading faces. But what else, what other examples are there? I think, I think the idea is slightly more radical than um, that suggests. So okay. yes, we are born with the potential to learn language. In a way, that must be true, because nearly all of us do learn language. Right. 
But the question is, what is it that we genetically inherit that enables us to learn language? One possibility is that we are born with lots of specific grammatical knowledge. Mm -hmm. The other possibility is that we are born just with very general purpose processes of learning and that those processes of learning will enable us to learn language, but they'll also just enable us to learn all kinds of ordinary facts about the world, that the very same processes of learning might allow us to um, learn physical facts about the kinds of interactions between physical things, you know, that if you pr push one domino, it's going to cause a chain reaction and make a whole line of dominoes fall okay. down. Learning those sorts of things about the physical world may occur through the very same processes as those which enable us to learn language. Okay. Other examples would be um, our capacity to imitate body mm -hmm. movements. This is something which is really important for learning to fit into your social world. Um, picking up the little gestures, facial expressions that are distinctive to a culture that determine whether somebody is accepted as part of the in-group or the out-group. You need imitation to learn those. Mm -hmm. Also, arguably, lots of technical skills, food preparation techniques, and so on. Um, you need to be able to imitate to learn those things. Mm. It was widely believed for a long time that, again, the capacity to imitate, to copy body movements, is something which we genetically inherit. But recently, evidence has emerged that newborn babies cannot imitate, that the capacity to imitate develops slowly, okay. and that it depends on the child having experience in which their own actions are mirrored by others. Okay. So, you know, there's a, there's a very natural tendency mm -hmm. if you lean over a crib or a cot mm -hmm. um, to a baby, that you as an adult begin to copy what they are doing. That experience acts like a mirror for the child. So whatever the child is doing, they are now seeing what that looks like from a third party perspective. In a way, your imitation is showing them what they look like. Mm. So it's forging a connection between the feeling of doing it say, the feeling of opening your mouth mm -hmm. and the sight of mouth opening. So the next time the baby sees a mouth opening, they will feel this kind of urge to open their own mouth mm. because the feeling representation of that movement has got linked up with a visual representation. So this cognitive gadget that we have developed over many, many centuries is the fact of this back and forth and that we have developed this this doing and seeing and for example in mimicking in in um, slowly learning what that feels like not just when we do it but also when we see it and slowly developing that into a mechanism where we can actually mimic someone else's behavior or someone else's accent is that what you're saying that it's a learned I'm thinking of the gadget as being sort of in the head, mm -hmm. but you're absolutely right that certain social practices, like imitation of infants, mm 
um, like there being a lot of face-to-face -face contact between infants. So this hasn't actually been tested, but it's possible that there are cultures in which predominantly contact with babies is more tactile than in the West. Mm -hmm. In the West, in contrast, there's lots of face-to-face -face contact between adults and infants. So it's quite possible that the capacity to imitate facial movements develops earlier mm -hmm. in the West than in those cultures which are more body contact oriented in terms of the interaction between adults and babies. Mm -hmm. So certain patterns of social interaction between adults and children influence which gadgets are developed at what time mm -hmm. um, in the course of childhood. Right. Uh, but the gadgets themselves are in the head. It's a kind of a functional way of characterizing the way the brain works. It's like, mm. it's like talking about the software that runs on the hardware of the brain. Right. That's really, really interesting. So what is it that excites you about this that you have developed? I mean, it, it moves away from a big field in the way that has fundamentally been thought of. It brings the building of mental mechanisms, that the building of the brain's software into the range of something that can be investigated really rigorously. So if you suppose that the software that makes it possible to learn language mm -hmm. evolved you know, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of years ago, that it was, as it were, built then, and now we just genetically inherit a blueprint mm -hmm. for its development. Then, in a way that there's no way of finding out how this fancy piece of software was assembled from parts. Mm. It's lost in evolutionary history. Okay. This perspective, which I think is supported by the evidence, suggests that the assembly, the assembly of the software is happening in the course of childhood development. So in principle, we can find out how it is being built by looking at people alive today. Hmm. It's not lost in the past. In the book, Cognitive Gadgets, I look in detail at four case studies, mm -hmm. and I review the evidence on language, mind reading, selective trust, as it's sometimes called, and um, imitation, mm -hmm. and say, look, that evidence suggests that these are gadgets rather than instincts. Yes. But there's lots of other distinctively human ways of thinking, mm -hmm. um, like autobiographical memory and moral thinking. Uh, you know, our, our capacity and constant tendency to think about how we and others ought to behave. Mm. And what I'm doing is is going in those directions, asking what does the evidence suggest about episodic autobiographical memory? What does it suggest about morality? Does it look like those things are genetically inherited or are they also gadgets? So I'm spreading out. Right. And so what does it say about our moral thinking? As far as I've got, um, because I'm, I'm really quite a slow but sure kind of person, okay. you know, rather than shooting from the hip. But um, there is a problem with morality in that most of the research on its development uh, has two problems. One is a kind of a nativist bias. So most of the people looking at the development of morality 
in children um, come to the topic with the assumption that there's an awful lot which is genetically inherited. Mm -hmm. And consequently, their empirical research doesn't ask the kinds of questions that would enable us to find out whether it really is an instinct or a gadget. Mm -hmm. So that's one problem. And the other problem, I think, very much linked to your interests is that, in a way, research on moral education is a very political topic. It is. Absolutely. I mean, people, you know, are quite limited in the range of conclusions that they would find acceptable. Mm -hmm. So it's really striking to me, having been immersed in research on things like mind reading and imitation, mm -hmm which don't attract much political attention. Mm -hmm. And then I turn to research on morality and moral education, and I see that people are very tentative, and it seems to me a little bit blinkered in the way that they interpret data, the kinds of questions they're willing to ask. Hmm. Yes, it is a, definitely a very political and, uh, political and contentious issue. But how does the cognitive gadget aspect play on morality. Are you saying that the way people are moral or immoral or how they judge what's moral and immoral, I mean, it's, it's you know, certain things definitely are, are taught in certain societies. Some things are moral and in other societies, mm -hmm. the same thing is not moral mm -hmm. and it's not quite as black and white. But how do the cognitive gadget concept come in and make it different from what was previously thought as a inherent? Well, one question that I hoped that research on moral education would answer would be the effectiveness of really quite firm parental um, training in morality. Mm -hmm. Now, this is something where there are cultural differences. And, you know, we in the West now tend to be very sort of permissive. We have this belief that, you know, you, you give the child a few kind of guidelines, but you mustn't be too much of a disciplinarian. Mm -hmm. Now, if our capacity to think morally, not just what we think is right and what we think is wrong, mm -hmm. but our whole capacity to conceive of acts as being morally right or morally wrong, if that is itself something which is culturally inherited rather than genetically inherited, then one might expect cultures in which there is very firm teaching about morality to be in some senses more successful than those in which there is less explicit teaching. Mm -hmm. But most of the research is being done by people in contemporary Western cultures who don't want to find that firm moral guidance is effective. And I feel that I, I see that as a restriction. It's like there is, there is a constraint on what kinds of findings will be acceptable. Hmm. Because when a parent is trying to deliberately impose a moral guidance, some of the research says that isn't really willing to look at that, isn't really yes. wanting to explore that. Yes. Um, rather to look at how 
in general, children will make moral decisions. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yes. Or is inclined to um, prefer the view that um, children are, you know, they genetically inherit a framework, a, mm -hmm. ca a capacity to understand that some actions are right and others are wrong, perhaps a template of the kinds of actions that are right and wrong, mm -hmm. and that um, parents and other adults just need to provide a generally nurturant environment or one which encourages reflection mm -hmm. for the maturation of that inborn knowledge. Mm. Whereas other cultures are acting like, no, you, you really got to pass on a lot of specific knowledge mm -hmm. to kids in order for them to end up being full moral beings. Mm. And in a sense, those cultures might be right, uh, but Western researchers don't necessarily want to see that. Hmm. So I guess more research is needed. Oh yes, and an open mind in doing it. Right. Yeah. Now that you wrote the book and um, solidified this uh, this theory, what do you see as your next step in thinking about this concept? Well, I think you know morality, autobiographical memory, metacognition. So I think one aspect of my future work is going to be extending the range of inquiry to other distinctively human ways of thinking. And the other is going to be a process of correction and refinement. So I'm getting a lot of feedback on the book. Mm -hmm. um, some of it uh, is, is people saying, no, I, I don't think that's right. Either that specific interpretation is some evidence or that the whole framework that I've set up for interpreting the evidence needs some refinement mm -hmm. um, or change, and I'm going to be responding to that. So I'm going to be trying to make the framework for the way of thinking better mm -hmm. and trying to extend it to other modes of thought. Okay, well, thank you. That's really interesting. That's an interesting concept to be thinking about and as I said to you earlier, it's, it, was a, it was a new concept to me, so mm -hmm. it's certainly something that I think people would be excited to, to hear about. But as we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you personally, what is something that inspires you, a book or a quote or a poem or something that you think people would be interested in and something that inspired you? I'd like to pass on a piece of advice that was given to me when I was a postdoc by a mentor of mine, um, who's still a good friend, called um, Anthony Dickinson in Cambridge. And he knew that I would get very anxious before I gave presentations, or virtually any challenge would make me very anxious and feeling that, you know, I, I could not do this. And he said more or less casually that what had kind of always worked for him was to seek the respect of those you respect. Hmm. And I don't know whether it's exactly good advice. what he had in mind. It sounds like very good advice. Yes, I think How so. did you interpret that? I interpreted it as mm. find people who you respect for one reason or another and um, use them in part uh, as a standard. So, you know, as a, as a measure of whether you're working as hard as you should, whether you're attaining quality that you should but also as a bulwark against 
the sense that there are so many people out there with whom you could compare yourself, with whom you could decide, you know, am I am I as good as them? Am I as, am I as good as them? Would they be? Uh, would they admire this work mm. or not? I think you know there there is a danger of feeling that there's just so many people out there that one is seeking their approval mm. of some kind. And I think if one instead focuses on a small number of people whose opinion you respect and ask yourself, you know, am I good enough in relation to those people, then it can stop that kind of perpetual feeling of inadequacy, which can descend in any demanding competitive activity, mm -hmm. but certainly in academia. Definitely. Well, I think in many, many other aspects of life, too, it's a, such a good anchor to have in life because, of course, there's always the saying of don't go by the village voice of how you're doing. But now when the village is the global village, that's a much, much more difficult thing to do when it seems everyone else is doing better or doing more. So I really like that. I really love that uh, that thought of thinking about the few people that you really admire. And I think that's what everyone can, you know, there's not going to be hundreds of people. There's only going to be a few for everyone, isn't it? So. Exactly. No, it, it's been very valuable advice. And I think you're exactly right. It functions as an anchor. Oh, good. Well, thank you so much for, for talking to me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure.